0: good news here.
1: Bon appétit.
0: Hey everybody, I am Jim, one of the pastors here at Liberty Church Collingswood. Got a quick piggyback and programming note by way of piggyback parenting seminar. It's not a coincidence that the First topic of the new podcast that we dropped this past Friday, Five Golden Things of Liberty Lists, was about parenting. So if you tune into that podcast on our podcast feed, you get Callie Del Rimple dropping lots of wisdom about parenting, and that will be repeated at the parenting seminar this week for Five Golden Things. We have Patrick McAdams, our digital ministry director, telling us about candies that you never heard of and in the unlikely event that you would like to try some of Pat's candies. We have uh, that coming at you, that your way as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. Programming note related to the sermon and sermon series. So we've been in the book of Genesis, taking our time moving slowly through that book. As we've now transitioned into the season of Lent, we're going to press pause. On that sermon series from Genesis, we'll pick up after Lent. But here in the meantime, we are going to be doubling down on our practices of presence as part of the Represence Initiative here at Liberty Church Collingswood. So on the way in, Rachel, who is doing double duty, not only giving an announcement but also greeting, gave you the opportunity, if you haven't grabbed one, to take either a little booklet and or a fridge magnet about this thing, this project of relaunching our church into a post-Christian and post-COVID world we're calling it the Represence Initiative. So take one of these little booklets if you haven't yet, take one of these magnets, and as one of the key aspects of the Represence Initiative, you can read all about it, Our specific practices of presence. How do we embody the way of following Jesus and route to growing, whether you're new and exploring the Christian faith or a veteran of the Christian faith, to being a resilient disciple and follower of Jesus. And so this is the first of our sermons about practices of presence that we'll be doing right now about fasting, a little bit about feasting at the end. Final programming note, if this sermon feels a little bit familiar to you, I preached a version of this sermon, I rewrote it for this Sunday a couple of years ago, beginning the season of Lent, which was actually the second Sunday after pandemic began. So the plan then was to talk about fasting, which I did to a camera in my living room. But then also, since fasting, we're coming back to it again. It made sense to return to some of these same themes from Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38, which I will read in just a moment, if you're able. I invite you to stand here or online for the reading of God's Word. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living Word. And there was a prophetess, Anna Slightly different call and response for us this morning as it's drawn from one of the Gospels, the four narrative talents of Jesus' life. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, as we begin this sermon here this morning, give us your Holy Spirit that we would understand the Word of God. We seek your illumination as we encounter once again this minor character, Anna, ...from whom we have a lot to learn. Spirit, bring us into the presence of the crucified and resurrected Christ to the glory of the Father. Would we know your welcome even now and teach us, Father, how to practice the way of Christ more and deeply. We pray and we plead with you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. There's an old soul song called You Don't Miss Your Water. I don't know how many of you might know this soul song. A few different soul artists from the 1960s sang this song. The most famous version was Otis Redding. You should look it up. Do yourself a favor and listen to Otis Redding singing You Don't Miss Your Water. It was written by a different soul artist, also on the Stax label back in the 1960s. It was William Bell who did the first version. And the lyric goes like this. You don't miss your water. Till the well runs dry. And this will come as a shocker to most of you, that for a 1960s soul song, the point of this song is not about water and missing water, but instead, this is a song about a man missing his woman. Other lyrics in the song. But when you left me and said bye-bye, I missed my water, my well ran dry. It's a cliche. You don't miss your water till the well runs dry. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. There's something about us as human beings by which we appreciate things more by their absence. When we miss things, when they're not there anymore, that's where we say, Wow, I really miss this thing or this person. And before it came on my radar that there was a song by that same name, I used this, You Don't Miss Your Water Till the Well Runs Dry, in one of my own friendships back in seventh grade. If you're in seventh grade, if you're looking forward to seventh grade, if you can remember, albeit vaguely, seventh grade, at least for me, that was a time in my life when a new friend group began to come together, where as a seventh grader, I began to shed my childish ways with immature friendships, that had characterized my relationships with other boys before then. And now in seventh grade, I was discovering a new set of immature boys with which I was better friends, understanding too that our particular brand of immaturity actually marked a great precocious maturity towards which all of the other kids in my class would one day achieve if they were lucky. So within this new friend group, one of my friends was named Brad. And in the middle of seventh grade, my friend Brad came down with a pretty severe respiratory illness that kept him out of school for close to a month. And at first, oh, Brad's sick. I'm just doing my own thing, have my friend group, and I'm friends with Brad and these other friends to this day. I'll get by. But then days after days, weeks after weeks, started to pile up, and it dawned on me, I really miss my friend Brad. And I would notice when I was with my group of friends, there would be a pause in conversation and it would register with me, this is where Brad would say something. But instead we have this pause. Or I found my other friends a little less interesting and a little less funny because Brad was good at drawing them out in various ways that I and my other buddies could not. So, And this was a big step for me as an emotionally rich yet non-communicative 7th grader. I wrote Brad a letter, and this is all that it said. Dear Brad, there is an old saying, you don't miss your water till the well runs dry. Jim. Put it in the mail, and what do you know? Brad's mom called my mom and said, tell Jim that Brad really appreciated that letter. And so whether it's romantic relationships, friends, when we lose them, that's a fast of sorts. We register their absence. And so we're talking about fasting here this morning, mostly about fasting as a practice of presence, although fasting and feasting, properly speaking, is a practice of presence for us this Lent. Fasting is traditionally associated as a Christian practice with this particular holiday, plus the fact that it's in the Represence Initiative made all the sense in the world to begin the sermon series here. And I mentioned before the sermon that we preached about fasting here at Liberty Collingswood pretty much at the exact start of pandemic, and it was remarked at the time, and Eric Mitchell a couple of weeks ago, Reference this same thing that pastors at the time were exclaiming that we are encountering now at the beginning of pandemic an unexpected, involuntary fast from people, from community. It was drawing for me. I'm still unpacking emotionally everything that happened during pandemic to switch from a sanctuary that was really pretty full and continuing to grow to preaching into a camera. And I missed the hugs, I missed the fist bumps, I missed the faces, I missed the cues of a Sunday morning. We all did. We all did. And whether church or otherwise, we underwent an unexpected involuntary fast from community. We felt it. But, even as we felt it, didn't it increase our longing? Didn't it sharpen our awareness and need for those hugs, those fist bumps, those faces, those cues? And so we return to fasting here, and that's kind of what fasting is, where we deprive ourselves of a good so that we can feel the ache towards God. We put down some things, some practices that we normally enjoy so that we could become hungrier and hungrier and hungrier for the living Lord. And to some of you, fasting might seem scary, it might seem strange. That's okay, let's talk about that we have been talking about it in our small groups and our home meetings. But isn't it the case at the same time that living our lives numbed out and dulled out really isn't that great either? What if we would become sharper? And in fasting, we discover the very heart of the Christian story. So, two parts from here. Let's talk about what fasting is from Luke chapter 2. And then we're also going to talk about how that leads into Lent, leading into Lent. So what fasting is, and then leading into Lent with some fasting. Anna, Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38, one of my all-time favorite minor characters in all all of the scriptures. And to locate and orient you into Luke chapter 2, this is just after the birth narrative that the apostle Luke gives us in his narrative account of Jesus' life in his gospels. So, so far in Luke chapter 2, we have engaged with the angels that we've heard on high, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, etc. And we've seen the shepherds watching their flocks by night, And here in Luke chapter 2 at the Jerusalem temple, a little time passes and Mary and Joseph bring the young Jesus to the temple as was custom. And we meet Anna, and not only do we meet Anna, but you can go back and read more context in Luke chapter 2. Before Luke 2, 36 to 38, we meet another character of melancholy, similar to Anna, named Simeon. Simeon is waiting. Earlier on in Luke chapter 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon meets the Christ child and rejoices, at which he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. That's been called in the church, the nunc Dimittis. nunc, now, Dimittis. you are dismissing. Lord, now I can go. Now I can rest easy, because I have seen your Son, the Savior of the world. And it's through the lips of Simeon, also in Luke chapter 2, that we first feel the encroachment of the cross upon the story. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary. Mary. The cross is coming, is coming, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The wonder of Jesus' birth is matched with the weight of Jesus' cross. Simeon's waiting, and so is Anna. Humble, lowly Anna. Verse thirty-six. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. If you do the math on when women, really younger girls in in that age, typically got married, it's possible that this Anna was a widow for maybe 65 years. And in the ancient Near East, being a widow for any period of time was a place of deep vulnerability and exposure. A widow, maybe for 65 years, lowly, humble, but faithful. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's waiting, she's worshiping, and will focus on this fasting. Worshipping with fasting and prayer Fasting something that's common in the Old Testament something that's common in the New Testament something that's common in the early church something that's common throughout the ages of the church Something that's common all the way to today in the church And I wouldn't go so far as to say fasting is absolutely commanded of every Christian But it really is so common that part of me thinks if you've been following Jesus a while and you've never fasted at any point? You probably should. A 20th century Christian author put it this way about fasting. You and I have no more right to omit fasting, not to fast, because we feel no special emotional prompting than we have a right to omit prayer, Bible reading, or assembling with God's children for lack of some special emotional prompting. Fasting is just as biblical and a normal part of a spiritual walk of obedience with God as are these others. So when we fast, we deprive ourselves otherwise of a good for spiritual purpose. And most properly, fasting relates to food. But I'd say the big three in our day and age for fasting, it's fasting from food or drink or screens, whatever your go-to is. And I think there's a balance here. I was listening to a preacher recently talk about fasting And he said, really, the only kind of fasting is food. If you're doing other sorts of fasts, they're derivative of fasting, but they're not really fasting if you're not fasting from food. It's a both and. Most properly, fasting is food, but maybe it's drink, maybe caffeine, maybe it's alcohol, or screens. You're gonna do something else before you hit a screen in the morning. You're gonna turn off screens At a certain time before you go to bed, you're gonna binge watch less, you're gonna watch not at all. Whatever it is, identify some of your go to's and say, I'm not gonna do those go to's for a little while. And it's good for us to do. Fasting is a sharpener, a focuser for us. And depending on where you come from in the Christian tradition, or maybe coming to us from outside of the Christian tradition, you might think, fasting? That's not for me, even if I'm exploring or am a follower of Jesus. That's so legalistic. Well, I would say fasting is not a matter of legalism. It's simply a matter of labor. If you want to get better at something, you've got to put in the work. What would you say to somebody that would say, I am planning right now on becoming an excellent piano player. Oh, well, you must be practicing piano a lot. No, that would be legalistic. I'm not gonna practice at all. Instead, I am focusing on this wondrous good of becoming a great piano player. And you'd probably say, well, you're playing a lot of Heart and Soul and Three Blind Mice and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star for a long time, unless you actually put in the work. And even for me, sometimes I feel like there's a disconnect. Okay, grace and grace alone drives the Christian life. Therefore, my Christian spirituality, actually putting this stuff into practice, it must be easy. But it's not. It's grace-driven, but it's also effort-filled. Or you might think, fasting, it's just about food. What does that have to do with spirituality? Well, I'd ask you this. Have you ever been in a food coma before? Don't you know, and this happens to me more and more as I get older, if I have a heavy lunch or a heavy dinner... Especially trying to get back to work after a heavy lunch. I go This is hard. Where's my energy? And the answer is my energy is being directed to my gut Literally because I'm having to digest all of this food Similarly, what if we eat less to be sharper and when we fast Every time we feel that hunger pang, let it focus us. Let us pray. Let us understand what Jesus means when he quotes from Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone. Let's try to develop more of a holy hunger towards God. And let's understand, too, for all of the emphasis here in the late modern West about wellness and the mind-body connection, all of that stuff is well and good, but there is a deep centuries, millennia-old tradition within the church understanding that very thing. There is a mind and a body connection. And fasting understands that we are both. When we talked about practices of presence in our home meetings earlier this year related to fasting and feasting, Eric Mitchell pulled a quote in our materials from John Mark Comer, a pastor on the west coast, who said this Fasting is a means by which the disciple of Jesus prays with their entire body After all you are not simply a spirit in a body. You are a spirit and a body The discipline of fasting draws our attention to both our spiritual and our physical being in fasting The great hunger of the heart and mind for answered prayer permeates the body itself. And when we fast, we find deeper freedom. It makes you think twice. When you're buffered down. When you've had a long day. When you're a little more anxious than usual or rattled. And you find yourself reaching for that drink or that comfort food. You find yourself reaching for that sexual transgression or escape. You find yourself reaching for that binge-watching or for that binge-shopping that's only a, a click away. If you would fast from things that are either otherwise goods or things that go against God's law in a more intentional way, at those moments, you'll find freedom By being flushed out, I'm relying on all of these crutches way too much. God, give me a holy hunger instead that I would know that these things that I'm using as crutches, they're not ultimate. But God, you are. So in fasting, we find deeper freedom away from our go-tos that we're leaning on way too much. And then also in fasting, we find a curbing. I talked about this in a different connection a couple of weeks ago. The Christian vision of desire is a garden, not a jungle. The Christian vision of our desires, our desirous selves, is a garden, not a jungle. How many of you, whether online or in the room, if you're local, been to Longwood Gardens outside of Philadelphia? You have in Longwood Gardens these wonderful manicured landscapes stretching as far as the eye can see and around the world in older cultures, east, west, north, and south. There are these palaces with grounds and everything. It seems like every blade of grass. Or for crying out loud, there are no weeds in Disney World, right? They're gone because everything is completely manicured and in its place. That's the view of the Christian desirous self, where we have desires that are good but need to be curbed. Not a wild jungle with everything going any direction, which is total chaos. And if you think about it, even a jungle or a rainforest or an ocean or a forest forest, you need ecological equilibriums there, or those things are going to be thrown out of whack. Growing up in the South, there was the kudzu epidemic, where you had this kudzu weed that would completely wipe out pine forests and other forests down south because it got out of whack. It was not beautiful, but it is ugly. In the earlier times in the Christian tradition, especially coming from monks and monastics, monks would reduce their caloric intake and or fast to curb their sexual sexual desires and bring them into greater line. But whatever it is, a Christian theologian and writer, Richard Foster, no relation to David Foster Wallace, put it this way, Our human cravings and desires are like rivers that tend to overflow their banks. Fasting helps keep them in their proper channels. What enthusiasms must you curb? Would you use fasting to get there? Another thing that fasting is good for, it's for grieving. Are you sad? I think in pandemic, one of the things that we're going to unpack, probably for years to come, is how has it shaped us and malformed us to be living with this sadness all the time, pandemic-related? When we fast and grieving, we are pressing down our grief to our very body, into ourselves. Often in the biblical narrative, there are connections between grief and fasting. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, when Saul died— Those around them fasted in grief. In the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah learns that the walls of Jerusalem had crumbled in Nehemiah chapter 1, he fasts, fasting a couple times in the book of Esther. When word goes out that Haman, evil Haman, has hatched a plan to exterminate all of the Jewish people in all of the lands, the Jewish people fast. When Esther very courageously says, I'm going to go to the king and plead on behalf of the Jewish people, she entreats her inner circle to fast with grief on behalf of what's about to happen. One of the confessions of sin that we use in our rotation of confession of sin passages here at Liberty Collingswood is adapted from Daniel chapter 9. When Daniel prays in the Old Testament on behalf of the Jewish people, before he gives that prayer of confession, he fasts we have had a lot of conversations over the past couple of weeks. We're rattled. We're shaken up by the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. We had a deacon's meeting this morning. We're going to talk to a couple other people at church as well. What can we do as a congregation? We're moving in those directions. But you might be wondering, halfway across the world, but I'm really bummed out about this. What can I do? Well, you can fast as a sign of grief to God. And one of the things that fasting does, going back to Daniel, is fasting is a way of repenting of our sin, turning our repentance, rewiring our bodies and souls, our neural circuits even, to steer away from the sinful pattern that's become ingrained in us. It is good to do these things, to take sin seriously, to take grief seriously. And then also when it comes to fasting, maybe it's just a painful and a purposeful waiting. That's what I was doing. In the language of verse 38, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, for Simeon, the consolation of Jerusalem, waiting for the king to return, to make all things new again. We're not there yet, but we're going to fast. We're going to wait and fast. If you're on the fence about fasting, think of it this way. Why not turn your anxious worrying into a fasting pattern of waiting? Turn your worrying into a fasting waiting. And even if you're not sure where you are with Jesus, or if you're struggling with Jesus a little bit, I know multiple people, when part of their Christian journey of coming to a place of committed Christian faith, as I know men and women that have said, I'm going to fast to get to the bottom of this. God, if you're real, I'm fasting now. I am putting in concerted focus and effort to see if you are actually real and will meet me. And over and over again, stories that God has done exactly that. So that's what fasting is. Let's talk briefly about leading into Lent. This is not a command. At the end of the day, this is not a new legalism that we were placing on you. But voluntarily, might you put something down this Lenten season to be filled by Jesus. Might you grow in hungering for that holy hunger? I was listening to a podcast recently from a pastor that said, the older that I get as a pastor, in addition to wanting to be with people that believe what I believe, I want to be in a church community where we all want the same thing, not believing the same things, but wanting the same things as well. Let's want and hunger together for a deeper, deeper, and profound longing and hunger for God, we can move closer to that together by saying, hey, let's fast as a community in different ways, whether it's home groups or otherwise. How are we gonna fast and press ahead together? What are we going to give up? Where are you numbing out? Where are you dulled? How might you let hunger in? And this Lenten season truly is a season of reflection and repentance and prayer. And preparation. Fasting helps get you there. What baby steps might you take if you're in a small group? One of our home meetings, go back to the materials that we put together, that Eric put together, or reach out to me or to Eric or a home meeting leader to get a ton of resources that we are happy to share with you. And the baby steps part, I don't recommend that if you've never fasted before that you go on a full 40-day fast. But there are shallower parts of the swimming pool. Do a fast of food just all day to evening. If you're on screens, way too much. Don't take your phone and throw it into the Cooper River, never to be seen again. But put limits on it. Seek accountability. Lessen. Reduce. And by whatever fast we undertake, we are with Jesus in the wilderness. One of the echoes, one of the patterns, principally for Lent, this 40-day season, is mirroring Jesus 40 days in the wilderness as he prepared to meet Satan. We talked about this at our Ash Wednesday service. We follow Jesus out into the wilderness of fasting by our own practices and no solidarity with him in our deprivation for spiritual goods. As we walk with Jesus all the way to the cross, where not we, but he went and died. And think of it this way. On the cross for three days and three nights, Jesus fasted from life. Jesus fasted from light. Jesus fasted from oxygen. That we would be saved. That he would atone for all of our mess, all of the jungles of our own sin. That as we come to him by faith, we know that we are completely, not partially, but fully forgiven forever. That as we repent, as we confess every Sunday, we do so with the symphony of grace. Beneath our songs of confession is a symphony of God's grace. As we wait for the fulfillment that consolation of Jerusalem, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, when the longing fully, the climax of Anna and of Simeon, moving ahead from Jesus' birth, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, to the time when Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And there's gonna be feasting. The Christian story is not just one of fasting. We will confess in just a moment that I believe, we believe, in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Our fast is spirit and body, so will our resurrection be for all time and forever. And it's going to be great. One of the images of living with God in heaven forever is exactly that, one of feasting. As I look at other stories around the world, I see so many of them that have the fasting piece, but not really a feasting piece. So many traditions, for example, that come to us from the East for all of the good things that are woven into those traditions. At the end of the day, there's a lot of fasting. When the problem with human desire is that you have desires. And just fast and fast and fast to zero out the fact that you have any desires at all. The Christian view instead says we have desires that need curbed, but they are real and can only find their full place in God. Or From a secular materialistic perspective, death is the ultimate fast, and that's it. It's only fasting all the way down. Last night I finished a memoir of one of my favorite authors and critics who died recently, Clive James, an Australian who had a literary career mostly in England, read his memoir, did a little digging online to look at, he was on TV a lot, and he was giving one of his last interviews before his death to the BBC. And he said, I've had a full life. And of any writer in the 20th century, more than most, Clive James was a writer of joy and the goodness of humanity and the courage and the nobility of what we can be and the joy of writing, the joy of living. He said, I've had a good life. It's going to end soon. And that's going to be it. There's no heaven above. There's no hell below. Anything like heaven or hell we experience now, and that's over. And he said, and that's okay. I actually teared up a little bit when I saw that. And I said, Clive, I've read a ton of your work. And what you're saying just then is a lie that you don't believe. It is a willful act of human suppression of grief and fear to have loved life. As much as you have, but to get to the end of it and say, this is it, it's going to be over very soon, and that's okay. That's not okay. That's a drive-off-the-cliff tragedy. But the Christian story says it because Jesus is crucified and resurrected. It is not fasting all the way down. But as you come to Jesus by faith, there's going to be a feast. There's going to be a feast because we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And for any fast that you do right now, feast on Easter. Open the faucet once again. Appreciate even more what you've been pressing pause on for a season. Give thanks to Jesus for it. In the Christian story, there's both longing and there's filling. And whatever good and proper feast you have now or on Easter or later, it's only going to be a foretaste of the fullness of the feast to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after-party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon, live, speak, and serve at you later.